in a region where the Zetas and Gulf cartels are engaged in a bloody battle for control of territory. This is just an example of the leading role that new media and information technology play in Mexico's war on drugs. When drug cartels began targeting traditional media outlets, such as newspapers and TV stations, a blackout of information about the extent of violence was prevented by Facebook pages, blogs, Twitter accounts, and YouTube channels. Of course, the internet has, has also provided the cartels themselves with a publishing platform. The Zetas, for example, are known for posting videos of their gruesome murders on YouTube. Technology is also playing an important role, not only in providing information about the extent of violence, but also on its patterns. Since the Mexican government stopped publishing figures on the number of people killed by organized crime, websites and researchers using tools such as Google Maps have tracked the number of casualties, providing valuable statistics to better understand how cartels operate. Today, we will hear from Carla Zabludovsky of the New York Times Mexico City Bureau, who will comment on the role that alternative media has played in the coverage of the war on drugs. Also, Andres Monroy Hernandez and Javier Osorio will present their research on the use of new media and technology in reporting and fighting trends in drug violence in Mexico. But first, we'll start with Jared Cohen, founder of Google Ideas, which is joining forces with Cato to organize this event. Let me introduce Jared. Jared is the founder and director of Google Ideas, an agent senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and the co-author with Eric Schmidt of The New Digital Age, Reshaping the Future of People, Nations, and Business. Previously, he served as a member of the Secretary of State's Policy Planning staff and as a close advisor to both Condoleezza Rice and Hillary Clinton. Jared has conducted research in Iran, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Afghanistan, and throughout Africa. As part of his research, he has interviewed members of Al-Qaeda, Hezbollah, and the Taliban. Not the Zetas yet, right? No. <laughs> He's the author of numerous publications on these issues. In 2011, Vanity Fair named Jared as a member of the next establishment. The Washington Post and Harvard's Kennedy School of Government named him one of the six top American leaders, and foreign policy listed him as one of the top 100 global think thinkers. He currently serves as a member of the National Counterterrorism Center uh, Director's Advisory Board. He received his BA from Stanford University and his Master's in Philosophy International Relations from Oxford University, where he studied as a Rhodes Scholar. Please help me welcome Jared Cohen. Uh, thank you, Juan Carlos, and, and let me echo my gratitude to all of you for, for braving the rain. Um, you know, I want to begin by thanking the, the Cato Institute for putting together this extraordinary event at the intersection of geopolitics and, and technology. Uh, over the years, I've been deeply impressed by Cato's thought leadership on a multitude of issues. And now, having left the geopolitical world and entering the uh, uh, technology world, I want to sort of give a special shout out to, to Cato for their forward thinking on use of technology and social media, and also for putting events like this one together. Um, I don't know if he's here today, but I think it's also worth acknowledging Ted Carpenter, uh, whose book, The Fire Next Door, really has broken new ground uh, in some of the policy challenges that we face south of our border. Um, and it's been an inspiration, certainly, to me and uh, my team, and I think all of us here. Um, you know, it's uh, also worth thanking uh, uh, Juan Carlos again, uh, as well as Zach. Where are you? Somewhere in here. Uh, maybe. Uh, 
He's tweeting. Uh, he's tweeting. Okay, he's, he's probably <laughs> tweeting. You, you guys have worked uh, incredibly hard to put together this panel of experts that we have here today. Um, I also want to thank Scott Carpenter and Justin Coslin uh, from the Google Ideas team, and also Lee Dunn, who I think is over there, uh, from Google's DC policy team, all of who have worked tirelessly uh, to make sure that this event goes smoothly. Um, so thank you all. Uh, now let's begin. Um, you may find it surprising that a company like Google is here engaging in a conversation about violence in Mexico. Uh, well, my response to that is you shouldn't be surprised at all. Uh, in fact, five billion new people are connecting to the internet in the next decade. Let me repeat that again. Five billion new people are going to connect to the internet in just the next decade. Uh, those five billion people, for the most part, live in parts of the world ridden with the greatest number of challenges, uh, where conflict is uh, prevalent, where instability is rampant, and where repression is all too familiar. Um, you know, this means that in the future, technology is going to be relevant to every single challenge in the world, not just the ones that are sort of you know, obvious for a technology company to work on. So there's this space in between philanthropy and core business that is currently unoccupied, uh, and where we need more engineering expertise and more people to understand the tools that people in these environments are going to use. We founded Google Ideas two years ago uh, to fill this gap, to fill this space in between philanthropy and core business, and to try to actually anticipate the unique sets of challenges that the vast majority of our future users are going to encounter in some of these environments. Um, our aim at Google Ideas is really twofold. Uh, first, we try to play a translation role and bridge the gap between those that understand uh, the tools and those that understand the geopolitical problems we face in our world. Uh, second, we try to actively uh, build products that, uh, or prototypes that can help address uh, some of the toughest uh, and thorniest challenges uh, faced by this next five billion. And we need not look any further than south of our own border to see that Mexico is a case in point. And the topic of drug violence in Mexico uh, is of deep personal interest to me. Uh, I worked on it periodically during my four years on the policy planning staff, and now at Google Ideas, uh, one of our main focus areas is looking for ways that we can use technology to map, disrupt, and expose illicit networks from narco traffickers to human traffickers to organized crime to the illicit arms trade and so forth. Uh, all of these networks are deeply intertwined, and you know, as much as we saw oftentimes silo uh, one network or another, the reality is they're all sort of part of the same global illicit networks problem. Now, I certainly don't claim to be an expert on Mexico. That's what this panel is here for. You have individuals with deep knowledge and on-the-ground experience. Uh, but like many, I have a perspective. And I, I'll take advantage of standing here at the podium to share that perspective with you. Uh, about a year ago, uh, Google's executive chairman and I had an opportunity to visit Ciudad Juarez. Now, most of my career, I've spent time in radicalization hotbeds in the Middle East and South Asia. Uh, to the extent that I've looked at uh, violent communities in Latin America, it's mostly been uh, gang communities in, in, in Central America or uh, in Brazil. Um, so I was curious how a community like Ciudad Juarez, which um, has been so impacted by uh, narco networks, maybe look the same or different. Um, and there were three things that really actually stood out to me as, 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 as surprising um, and different from what I'd experienced in some of these other violent environments. Uh, the first is the police who escorted us around, as well as the police who walked the streets of Ciudad Juarez, uh, were wearing face masks. 
Um, to me, there was no greater illustration of how deeply embedded fear is in a society than the law enforcement that's tasked to protect the population uh, actually wearing face masks. Not to mention, uh, you can't imagine what this would do psychologically to a population um, to stifle um, their sort of enthusiasm for engaging with law enforcement since they actually do have to show their faces. Uh, the second is, uh, it was fascinating to me to stand there in Juarez and look across the border in El Paso and see that it's really the same city with a wall going through it, which just reinforced this notion that this problem is in our own backyard and is so deeply intertwined between American society and Mexican society. And then the third observation I made, and I would say this is the most interesting to me, the most surprising, and probably the most prescriptive, which is the invisibility of the problem to somebody like me coming from the outside. You know, there was no equivalent of MS-13 tags on the, on the walls. There was no equivalent of, you know, 18th Street graffiti. There was no equivalent of, you know, a lot of the deification of uh, uh, radical leaders in, uh, you know, different hotspots in the Middle East and South Asia. Um, I asked one of the police officers driving around with us if he could point to something in Juarez that would sort of demonstrate to me or illustrate to me the presence of the cartels in this community. And he said, the only way to actually um, you know, sort of know that they're here is to talk to people. Um, you know, there's no sort of visual representation. Um, and so that's what we did. Uh, we talked to uh, victims of violence. We talked to bloggers. We talked to people who'd been extorted, threatened, uh, community uh, leaders, local politicians, and just ordinary citizens. And what we learned is that all of the data, all of the intelligence, all the information about where the cartels operate, where the activities are taking place, uh, where the drugs are moving, it all exists within the community. Um, all of that, there, there, there's no shortage of data. The, the problem is how to actually uh, make that data public. And the problem is individuals are too afraid to report crimes because of retaliation, uh, not surprisingly. Um, second is they don't have, um, uh, they have very little trust in the police. Um, uh, the police are, are often infiltrated by these organizations. Um, and then the third is even if they do trust the police and law enforcement, there's very little confidence that if they report a crime, blow the whistle, share intelligence, that it's actually going to lead to something actionable. So why take the risk? Now, this, these sort of observations were somewhat disruptive to my thinking, but in a useful way. You know, and, and, and the reason for that is it immediately got me thinking about free expression. Now, in my industry, the tech sector, when we think of free expression, we think of countries like North Korea, Iran, Cuba, uh, Syria, actively censoring their population's access to information, actively uh, preventing them from having access to a free and open internet and, uh, and mobile devices. Um, but this was a different way of thinking about free expression. You know, Mexico has a free and open internet. Uh, by all standards, it's a democratic government. Um, so how can a country that is democratic with a perfectly open internet have a free expression challenge? Well, in this case, as illustrated by my three observations from talking to people in Juarez, individuals are self-censoring out of fear, not of the state, but out of fear of non-state actors. And so it sort of makes you ask the question, you know, what's the point in having free and open access if you don't have freedom from fear? And this is the fundamental problem that people are dealing with in Mexico. Um, now, you know, the way that, uh, you know, this is sort of a, an interesting thing to digest when you go back uh, to, uh, you know, the Google offices or go back to uh, the tech sector and start describing what you see in, in, in Mexico. And five years ago, um, the challenges that we see south of our border 
were largely irrelevant to the type of expertise that you find at any technology company anywhere in the world. Now, it's easy to be pessimistic about Mexico, and most of what I've said so far is pessimistic. But believe it or not, I'm actually an optimist. And I'm an optimist because in the last five years, uh, we've gone from the challenges being irrelevant to engineers to the biggest challenge now uh, in terms of, of getting my industry involved, uh, demonstrating to engineers that their knowledge and expertise, their computer science skills are not only relevant, but actively needed. Um, because the challenges that I mentioned where people are self-censoring out of fear, these are challenges where technology can play an enormous role. The wild card in Mexico is the enormous growth of connectivity, uh, the rapid spread of mobile devices and internet access, and this is raising expectations on the part of the population. It's increasing accountability, it's increasing transparency, but it's also creating more options and more avenues through which people can actually intervene to help. And then, of course, the, the, the greatest impact will be around data. As I mentioned, all of the data exists within the communities. Um, the data exists on the ground, it's increasing every single day, it just hasn't been properly visualized, it has not been properly extracted. And so there's a unique opportunity to tell a compelling story about what's actually happening in Mexico. And then finally, I'll leave you with you know, a fundamental belief of mine of why this is all gonna be a, a net positive with the sort of uh, growth of technology uh, in, in Mexico, which is that Ultimately, illicit networks of the future are gonna to have to opt into technology. It's very difficult for them to stay relevant um, and move goods around and engage without using some kind of technology. Um, and so yes, this has short-term benefits. It expedites their communication, et cetera. But at the end of the day, it increases the room for error. Um, and by illicit networks opting into technology, uh, they're not just running the risk of their own errors, they're running the risk of anybody in their network slipping up and making a mistake. And even bad organizations and even illicit actors make many mistakes as well. Um, and so the best way to actually think about the future in Mexico is more data, uh, more technology, uh, more engineers helping the geopolitical experts like those on this panel troubleshooting those challenges, and more events like the one that we have today. Thank you. Thank you, Jared. For those that are tweeting this event or are watching it online, we have a hashtag, a special hashtag, which is MexViolence. So you can uh, tweet about what you're watching. Our next speaker is uh, Carla Zabludowski. Uh, she reports for the New York Times covering Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean. She has a degree in history and international relations from Boston College and a master's in broadcast and investigative journalism from Columbia University. Carla has worked for the Economist Intelligence Unit Proyecto 40 in Mexico City and Poder Group. Her written work has appeared in The Economist, The Guardian, and The New York Times. In her current role, she has covered breaking drug war news, the social and psychological consequences of the wave of organized crime-related violence, the last presidential, presidential election and inauguration in Mexico, and the growing role of women in local politics. She's working on a series about the spreading vigilante movement in pockets of Mexico, such as Michoacán and Guerrero, where the rule of law is weak and indigenous communities are growing restless. Please help me welcome Carla Zabludowski. Thank you for the introduction and thank you to those who have made their way here or watching online. This past Sunday night, locals in Reynosa, Tamaulipas, near the US-Mexico border, were going about their business. There were people walking around in public areas while others were enjoying Sunday night films in the local cinema. 
And just like that, a shootout began at 7.30, or so it seems. Apparently, those walking around ran for cover, terrified. Supposedly, those in the theater were asked to remain there until 11 at night. And allegedly, when the gunpowder settled, there were 40 dead on the ground. Now, as a journalist, of course, I hate using these words, like apparently, supposedly, and allegedly. But 12 hours after the shootout, this was still all I had to go by. Tweets posted overnight, a 15-minute YouTube video of the shootout that was floating around, and some photographs of burned cars. Though, of course, none of these reports were verifiable. On Monday morning, I called at the Maulipas Police Department to inquire about the supposed shootout and was told that they would not give out any information or confirm anything, officially or unofficially. I checked local papers and couldn't find anything even mentioning the shootout. The local paper did have a story on the Harlem Shake, though. Finally, by Monday afternoon, the state attorney's office released a vague statement saying there was a shootout, two collateral victims, and seven detainees. No explanation and certainly no final body count. More and more, this is becoming the norm in many parts of Mexico. Unconfirmed information flows from Twitter, Facebook, and blogs are increasingly replacing official news sources in the first critical hours, and sometimes well beyond that. And it is no surprise why. According to the Committee to Protect Journalists, 48 journalists have been killed or disappeared since December 2006. In an attempt to curb this assault on journalists, newspapers have toned down or eliminated their coverage of drug-related violence. As study by Fundación MEPI, an independent investigative journalism center, found, for example, that El Mañana newspaper, based in Nuevo Laredo, published three stories related to drug trafficking in June 2011. That month, 98 people were killed in cartel-related murders. Just yesterday, the Saltillo-based newspaper El Zócalo announced in an editorial that it would, quote, by virtue that there are no guarantees of security in the full exercise of journalism, the editorial council of the Socalo newspapers has decided to abstain from publishing all information related to organized crime. To fill this information vacuum, journalists and citizens alike have taken to social media. The latest Reynosa shootout is a great example of how news begins to spread online in the absence of formal or official sources. Using the hashtag ReynosaFollow, information began flowing as the shootout was apparently happening. One of the first tweets was sent by Luis Daniel 12 and read, something serious went down in Reynosa. Apparently dozens dead, looking for more info. Then there was Andalalucha who wrote, Twitter is an amazing source for following things as they unfold, but one feels totally useless when gun battle is happening. Baboon MD later tweeted, cleanup of bodies and burned vehicles is hastily carried out by armed civilians. An official body count will never be known, perhaps. What I found reporting in Mexico during the past year and a half is that more often than not, you hit a brick wall. Information is hard to come by, and verified data even more so. Like Reynosa Folo in Tamaulipas, there is a small online army that has made, its, made it its mission to supply a constant stream of updates on security situations in different parts of the country. There is Verifolo in Veracruz, there is MTY Folo in Monterrey, Acafolo in Acapulco, and so on. There are also numerous regional blogs and a fairly regular stream of YouTube videos showing shootouts or roadblocks. Who the people feeding violence-related social media are or why they do what they do is anyone's guess. What is true is that they formed a growing online community of informants that is trying to document sporadic acts of violence as they happen. The problem is that it's hard to verify any of these reports precisely because of what makes Twitter and Facebook and YouTube so attractive in the first place. 
Anonymity means that it is nearly impossible to verify who the sources are, if they are indeed at the scene where they claim to be reporting from, and finally, what their agenda is. Take the audio that was leaked last month by a San Luis Potosí state newspaper in central Mexico. Supposedly, it is the voice of the governor's spokesperson urging his staff to create anonymous social media profiles in order to harass journalists publishing information critical of the administration. So this begs the questions. How do you know who is who online? What is their objective? How much of the information out there is real? Or take the Facebook page, Valor por Tamaulipas, which you mentioned, with nearly 180,000 likes and a constant stream of updates on security matters in the state. Who administers this page? There are rumors that the Navy feeds into it. Not to say that's a bad thing, but if you don't know where your information is coming from, you don't know why it's being thrown your way. Last month, hundreds of flyers were handed out in several cities in Tamaulipas, offering a $45,000 reward for information on the page's administrator. Which brings us to another problem of reporting on the drug war through social media. What happens when those supplying it do not have proper online security checkpoints in place? The most popular blogger in Tamaulipas in 2011 was by far La Nena de Laredo. She was also, it is believed, the editor of the local paper Primera Hora. La Nena used to post updates on the blog Nuevo Laredo en Vivo often about violent acts in the city. By September, her decapitated body was found along with a note that read the following. Nuevo Laredo en Vivo and social networks. I am La Nena de Laredo, and I am here because of my reports and yours. How many journalists and citizen reporters are even remotely trained in online security? How many, for example, VPN in when they post sensitive information? Given the current security situation in Mexico, these are notable risks uh, to actively participating in social media. That isn't to say that Twitter and Facebook and YouTube aren't important tools, because they are. They exert pressure on the government to reveal events that would otherwise remain concealed. They increase trans uh, transparency from the ground up. And when their information flow is real and happens in real time, they may even save lives. They are, by and large, incredibly valuable. In fact, in some parts of the country, they are now the only source of information. Users just need to be safe. Local reporters, especially, would benefit greatly from training. They are the most visible and the ones who are most frequently targeted by criminals. As important as safety is veracity. Journalists need to assess and vet the content of social media just like they would any source. Citizen reporters are not protecting their reputation or that of their news organizations. Often, what they're trying to do is protect themselves and their friends. But many journalists, myself included, wrestle with what to tweet or retweet or post on Facebook. With few exceptions, I choose not to tweet or retweet information that is unverified or unverifiable. It spreads panic and ultimately puts your credibility on the line. Because one of the biggest draws of social media, anonymity, is also the best reason to approach these new sources with healthy caution. Thank you very much. Thank you, Carla. Our next speaker is Andres Monroy Hernandez. He's a researcher at Microsoft Research and an affiliate at Harvard University's Burkham Center for Internet and Society. His research focuses on the design and study of social computing systems that support civic engagement and creative expression. His work has been featured in the New York Times, CNN, Wire, and has received awards from Ars Electronica and the MacArthur Digital Media and Learning Competition. 
Andres was named one of Boston Business Journal's emerging leader in 2012. He holds a PhD from the MIT Media Lab and a BS from the Tecnológico of Monterrey, Mexico. Andres. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Andres Monroy. I'm a researcher at Microsoft Research. And I'm going to you know, go over a couple of projects that I've been working on uh, for the past couple of months uh, related to the topic of today. Um, so first, you know, just an outline, I'm going to first focus on kind of giving some context on what the Mexican drug war is like, and then focus on some more specific things. Um, so just in case you haven't you know, followed the news, you know, as people in this panel have been talking about, you know, the Mexican drug war is some, uh, an, an actual armed conflict, not just like this kind of mythical war against drugs, but it's an actual armed conflict between drug cartels and the military and local police enforcers. Uh, that has taken the lives of more than 60,000 people. Um, and it's also a war that affects everyday lives. So when we think about uh, places that are, um, you know, in moments of crisis, uh, typically there are crises that happen, you know, like earthquakes or floodings that happen once in a lifetime perhaps or, or every year. But in these cities in Mexico that are at war, uh, crises are part of everyday life. Uh, and the kind of crises that are happening here are things like, you know, car bombs, grenade attacks, shootings that are kind of affecting uh, daily life. And this changes dramatically the way people use technology and the way people interact with each other. Uh, so the Mexican drug war is not just a war about you know, bullets. It's also an information war, as uh, we've been discussing here. Um, so just to kind of uh, step back for a minute, uh, typically when there is an emergency in a country like the US or a European country, uh, there are two main entities that are in charge of information flow. There is the, the government, you know, the police uh, department, the mayor, the president, who kind of delivers information about what's going on and that you know, kind of has the, the authority to say what's happening. And then there is the media that kind of broadcasts those messages and in some cases adds uh, new information to this information flow. So you have these two entities. And as Carla and others have been saying, in Mexico, those two entities are not doing their, their, their job. Uh, so for example, here from the Washington Post, I'm just going to quote how uh, in Mexico, fearing for their lives and the safety of their families, journalists are adhering to a near-complete news blackout under strict orders of drug smuggling organizations and their enforcers who dictate via daily telephone calls, um, you know, emails and news releases what can and cannot be printed or aired. So this is what is happening to the media. Uh, similarly, the government is going through the same kind of uh, challenges of you know, censorship. And here I'm going to quote again the same article where it says you know, how the, the news blackout extends to government officials. Uh, and then they cite the case of Nuevo Laredo, a city bordering with Texas, where the mayor mysteriously disappears for days and refuses to discuss drug violence. The military general who presides over the soldiers patrolling the city doesn't hold any news conferences or uh, issue any statements or answer questions from the media. So you can imagine if you're a citizen in this kind of uh, place where you, know, you are seeing or hearing or being a witness of all sorts of violence, you turn on the TV and all you see is soap operas, or you open the newspaper and you don't really see news of what's happening around you. Um, so what's, uh, what kind of this creates is this emergence of new uses of technology to kind of circumvent some of this censorship. Uh, just to give you some context on the numbers in Mexico, uh, so the internet usage has doubled in the past 10 years, and I'm sure the numbers are even higher now. Uh, of those people who are on the internet, about 60% of them are using social media. 
And of those who are using social media, 20% are using Twitter. Uh, in fact, Mexico is the fifth largest country on Twitter uh, in the world. Uh, so just to, to give you a sense of, of the level of activity that uh, Mexico has in, in social media. Uh, so when we have these three intersection of you know, weakened institutions, traditional media and government, uh, increased violence as a result of the drug war, and increased social media adoption, we have things like the following. So this is a tweet, kind of like the one Carla was saying, and I'm gonna translate this to uh, English. Uh, here is from Angela, I changed the name, obviously, uh, but the, the tweet, the content of the tweet is still the same, and it says, you know, caution on Gonzalez Avenue by the big supermarket, people report a recent risky situation, and then the hashtag MTYFollow. So a couple of things to note here. One is that people are referring to specific locations uh, in the city where they see the violence going on, and then they use different euphemisms to refer to the violence. In the case of uh, Twitter, many people use the, the, the term risky situation, uh, which is uh, situación de riesgo, just to refer to shootings or, or car bombs or grenade attacks. Uh, and then people attach this hashtag. So every city in Mexico that has been affected by the violence has kind of organically developed a hashtag, like the one here, MTYFollow, to kind of aggregate all this information in one single space. MTY is the... Um, uh, the, 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 uh, the code for the airport in Monterey or the city in general, and then follow is an invitation to follow this hashtag. So what I decided to do is look at four different cities, uh, Monterey, uh, Reynosa, Veracruz, and Saltillo. Uh, Monterey is about the size of Boston, it's four million people. Uh, Reynosa, Saltillo, and Veracruz are similar in size from 600,000 people to 800,000 people. And these cities are, cities are particularly affected by the violence. So what I decided to do, and these are where the cities are, um, what I decided to do is to look at the volume. You know, how many tweets are we talking about? I've been kind of anecdotally looking at all these tweets, but I didn't really have a sense of, of the volume and, and how many, how many uh, tweets are being posted. So we looked at a, a period of 16 months from August 2010 to November 2011, and we found uh, more than half a million tweets uh, being posted with the particular hashtags of those four cities. And actually, I just focus on one hashtag per city. As you can imagine, in a kind of more citizen-driven uh, activity, there is a lot of kind of back and forth on what hashtags to use. So I just focus on the most uh, important hashtag. Uh, so these are the hashtags for each one of the cities, and these are the numbers that we found. Uh, so a couple of things to note. Here is the large volume of tweets, and also the number of individuals, unique users, who are posting things with the hashtags. So we have more than 1% of the population of these cities reporting things on Twitter, and you can imagine, if Twitter numbers are uh, as still the same, uh, Twitter claims that 40% of their users are kind of just listening. Uh, so you can imagine the audience is a lot larger. And also a lot of people you know, might post without the hashtag or might be afraid of posting anything on Twitter. So you have a large number of people uh, posting. And now I also wanted to see you know, what are people tweeting about. So this is kind of the typical uh, way of visualizing large uh, corpus of text and just like a very simple visualization of the most common words in one of the cities that I was looking at. And you can see the word balacera uh, being really large there is the, the word for shooting in Spanish. And you also see the names of some uh, Twitter accounts, as well as locations like Garza, which is one of the main avenues in, in, in Monterey, uh, detonaciones, blast, and other kinds of words. Uh, so I did a more systematic analysis of the type of words and what are the, the frequency of those words. So what we found is you know, the main types of words people use are first places, you know, referring to particular locations in the city, then uh, words to refer to the violence, uh, particularly to shootings or you know, car bombs, grenade attacks, etc. And then uh, words referring to reports, people are re reporting things, as you might expect, and then uh, references to people on the Twitter sphere as well. Um, 
The other kind of thing that I wanted to look at is you know, what kind of tweets people are posting. So if you haven't used Twitter, uh, there are different ways in which you can interact with Twitter. One is you can tweet uh, just kind of broadly without any reference to any individual, or you can mention someone, or you can retweet somebody else's content, kind of like just push a button and the, the tweet gets re-spread uh, uh, in, in the Twitter sphere. So one, one interesting thing that we see here is how uh, a lot of the activity on Twitter is more about disseminating than interacting. And if we compare this to uh, a city like Seattle, which is what I did, uh, the numbers are reversed in a city like Seattle where we have a lot more mentioning of each other, people talking to each other, kind of like a chat room, uh, more so than retweets. But in Mexico, uh, in these particular cities, retweeting is the most, uh, uh, one of the most, uh, you know, uh, important activities on, on Twitter. So it's more about disseminating information rather than interacting. The other thing that I wanted to look is, you know, how often are people tweeting in this city? So this is a, a plot of four different cities uh, over the course of these 16 months. At uh, the top we have Reynosa, at the bottom we have Veracruz. And you can see how the volume of tweets goes up and down uh, throughout the years. Uh, and it actually is really interesting because the spikes actually correspond to some of the biggest events uh, in those cities. So for example, uh, in Monterrey, uh, around August, uh, September 2011, there was a massacre in a casino that killed 52 people. And that actually generated one of the biggest spikes in this particular city. Uh, so one of the interesting things here is kind of the activity on Twitter uh, corresponds to some of the, 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 the what's happening on the ground. So kind of it's a proxy to know what's, what's going on on the ground, even if the media might not be reporting it. The other thing that is really interesting to me is how, you know, I organize the cities from north to south, and that's kind of also how the violence has spread from north to south. And you can see how also the activity on the Twitter sphere uh, is kind of, uh, it started in Reynosa early 2010, and then Monterrey, and then Saltillo, and then Veracruz much later. So again, you also see this geographic representation here. Um, the other fascinating thing that I wanted to look at is, you know, who is tweeting? You know, we hear about people tweeting, but who are these people? So I went ahead and plotted uh, for each one of the cities, and I'm just going to zoom in in one of the cities. Uh, in the horizontal axis, we have the number of tweets. In the vertical axis, we have the number of followers. Each one of the dots represents a person tweeting with the hashtag. So a couple of things to note here. The first one is that we have kind of three different groups. Uh, that, uh, over, over there, we have uh, one account that has millions of followers, but very few tweets. So who is this? Uh, this is CNN in Espanol. And one of the interesting things to see here is that uh, even though those hashtags are created by citizens, you have this kind of major uh, you know, news organization using one of those hashtags when reporting on the violence in Mexico uh, and, and kind of contributing to the conversation. But obviously, they report on all sorts of other things from you know, anything that happened in the world, just in Spanish. But when they do uh, talk about the violence in Mexico, sometimes they use those hashtags. Um, the other group is you know, average citizens who you know, one day tweet about their cat, the next day they see a shooting and they report on that, and then the next day they continue and tweet about what they have for lunch. But there are people with an average number of followers and, 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 and kind of they tweet about the violence once in a while. And then the most fascinating group is this group that I call curators. These are people with a lot of followers, not as many as CNN, but a lot of followers, hundreds of thousands of followers in some cases, and also who have contributed a lot of content to these conversations on these hashtags. Uh, so what these people do is they spend a lot of time on Twitter, you know, browsing through the hashtag uh, content and talking to people and kind of broadcasting 
when something major happens in the city. Um, so I decided to talk to, actually, well, here is an, a graphic also of the retweet network of, of these individuals. And you can see the same people that we found in the previous uh, plot are the same people who are re being retweeted a lot. So they have a lot of visibility, a lot of followers, and they also contribute a lot of content. So I decided to interview a couple of them, and here is two of them. Uh, one of them is Angela, who has about 25,000 followers. The other one is Claudia, who has about 30,000 followers. And when I asked Angela, how many hours a day do you spend on Twitter? She says, 15 hours a day, which I thought was crazy. You know, how, many, how, how can you spend so much time on Twitter? And you know, she didn't say exactly what she does for a living, but my impression is that she kind of has a job that allows her to be on Twitter while she does other things. But she has a lot of followers, and she's very, know, uh, very knowledgeable of the city, and also people really know about her. Um, the interviews were in Spanish. Uh, so then I asked him, how did they get started with Twitter? So Angela said that you know, a friend introduced her to Twitter, and she just kind of joined because she wanted to check it out. Uh, Claudia said that because she wanted to follow celebrities. She, she heard on the radio that you know, celebrities are on Twitter, so she went to Twitter. And it's interesting how they went from kind of this more mundane kind of Twitter activity to a more kind of central role in, in reporting the violence in the city. Uh, then I asked them explicitly, you know, how do you describe your role? So for Angela, she says, you know, I am a journalist, she says. It is as if I were a war correspondent on social networks of the war we are living in Mexico. And for Claudia, she says, you know, I'm just another citizen, and people tell me that I'm like their angel for looking after them. Uh, so you can see this kind of sense of, of community uh, interest and, and being interested in, in helping others. And in fact, when I asked them about their motivations, Angela says, you know, I consider this as a community service, even though people might laugh about it. And she kept referring to this as a kind of something that some people might not take very seriously, but it's actually really serious. Uh, similarly, Claudia says, you know, I'm tweeting, uh, for me, uh, tweeting is an altruistic community service. So you can see that they have this interest in helping their community and going from joining just to follow celebrities to something more, more serious. Um, then I asked them, you know, who are your sources as well? Uh, so Angela says, you know, all, uh, not all the information comes from Twitter. Uh, there is a lot of people who know what I do. They have my number and they call me. They are 100% citizens. She referred to having contacts in different kind of, uh, in the police department, in the, in the fire department, who kind of will call her directly or, or SMS to her and will tell her what's going on in the city. Uh, for Claudia, she says, you know, most of the information comes from Los Twitteros, which is how often people in Mexico refer to the Twitter community, uh, my followers, and in other cases, reporters on TV or local news, which is interesting because despite the fact that uh, traditional journalists might not be doing their job, in many cases, people are really, um, uh, you know, uh, brave, a lot of journalists, and, and actually do report on what's going on. Um, so we talked about this. Uh, so there are two main kind of uh, sources of intimidation for a lot of these people online. As Carla mentioned, uh, the case of La, La Nena de Nuevo Laredo, who was killed for uh, reporting things online. And also in the case of Veracruz, where two Twitter users were sent to jail on charges of terrorism by the government for spreading, uh, apparently, rumors online. Uh, it was never really clear what really happened that day, but it was another, it's another source of tension in Mexico, you know, government trying to... Uh, repress some of the, 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 the content that is being spread online. Uh, so just as a, as a conclusion, you know, one is that social media is highly participatory. It's a lot faster. And in fact, one of the reasons why in many of these cities social media is playing the role of traditional media is because even if the reporters do report on what's happening, it takes hours or even days for them to you know, really get together all the information and put it on the newspaper, while in social media it's really, really quick. And a lot of people, before they leave home or before they leave work, they check on Twitter on what areas of the city to avoid, almost the same way you might do that in, in here, for example, for traffic. Um, the other thing is how Twitter is not 
by itself or social media by itself uh, alone is part of an information ecosystem where there is the media who in many cases is doing their job and some others is not. Uh, there is also the government who in some cases are spreading information and some others not. But Twitter and Facebook and all this uh, lives in an ecosystem which is you know, mediated by different technologies. Uh, then the other thing is about empowerment and intimidation. Uh, so some uh, citizen journalists are being empowered by these technologies, but at the same time, this visibility is giving them you know, more attention to what they're doing and also building some kind of intimidation from powerful organizations. So again, there is this challenge between visibility and opacity that we really have to grapple with. Uh, the last thing is you know, the emergence of curators in, in Mexico, these people who are aggregating information and playing a central role uh, that I think is really something that we need to look into more detail. And you know, in general, I think this is a very rich area for, for research and for developing technologies, as, as uh, we were saying before, you know, that might empower some of these people and might help uh, with the, what they are doing already. Thanks. Thank you very much, Andres. That was a fascinating pres presentation. Uh, we're taking questions. Uh, by Twitter, by the way, uh, with the hashtag MexViolence, so feel free to send yours. Our next speaker is Javier Osorio. He's a PhD candidate in political science at University of Notre Dame, and he's currently a fellow of the Program of Order, Conflict, and Violence at Yale University. His main research agenda is focused on disentangling the microdynamics behind the onset, escalation, and diffusion, diffusion of drug-related violence in Mexico. To analyze these dynamics, he created a geo-reference database of daily events of drug violence covering all Mexican municipalities between 2000 and 2010. To build this database, Javier co-developed Eventus ID, a novel software of automated textual annotation of event data from reports written in Spanish. To conduct his dissertation research, Javier received support from the National Science Foundation, the Social Science Research Council, Open Societies Foundations and the United States Institute of Peace and the Kellogg Institute for International Studies and the Harry Frank Guggenheim Foundation. Please help me welcome Javier Osorio. Can we have a presentation there? There we go. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, everyone. Thanks a lot for the invitation from the Cairo and, 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 and Google IDS. So I'm going to talk today a little bit about the challenges of measuring uh, drug violence in Mexico. As we've been discussing, um, we, we have experienced a very violent escalation of conflict among criminal organizations. Yeah, this is one of the masks. Uh, military officers that we have in Mexico. So we have seen like this massive escalation of violence, but trying to put the, the context, it, well, the Mexican conflict in perspective, in comparative perspective, we can take, take this uh, 50,000 people killed in five years and try to compare it with different types of, of conflict. For example, we consider the standard definition of a civil war based from academic uh, uh, literature the basic definition says that you have to have a thousand people killed in one year in order to call a conflict as an onset of civil war. Well, the Mexican case, comparing to these figures, we can say that we have the, the onset of 50 civil wars in just six years. That's the size of the Mexican war on drugs. Of course, numbers are important, right? uh, especially in politics. Uh, if something is not counted, then it doesn't count. That's why you have measures of everything. Those numbers help uh, uh, people and analysts to call the attention, so the attention of uh, decision makers, also attract the, the attention of the public, 
the media, public, um, public opinion. So numbers are very important, and getting them right is crucial to analyze the different dynamics of conflict that are going on here. But of course, as um, oh, it's kind of off-frame, but uh, Albert Einstein once said that not everything that counts can be counted, and not everything that is counted actually counts. So what is the kind of information that the government is giving us? Uh, the government is basically providing us some uh, data on homicides. They started developing this count by taking information from the police, the general attorney office, the Navy, and the Army, trying to get it together to analyze based on some characteristics what it can be considered a drug-related homicide. They developed their count in 2007. So for all this period, we don't know anything. Again, if you don't measure it, then it doesn't count. Well, that's completely false. I mean, uh, criminal organizations are not new in the country. They have been operating there for several decades, maybe from the 30s, uh, and they didn't conduct their, uh, their activities with very violent, uh, very violent means. So if we don't know anything about them, how can we assess what caused the crisis? Uh, there's another problem, not only of truncation in the official data, but also in the measures. Uh, this data is just plotted for the, is the national aggregate uh, for municipal level data at the monthly basis. But of course, many things can happen in a month. You have 30 days there. Then the government decided like, to aggregate the data in quarters. So you have like compounded information, comprised information on a more aggregate level that's less quality information because many other things can happen in three months. But the main problem with government data is that it just focuses on homicides. It's just a body count, a number that keeps increasing every once uh, someone gets killed. But that's, that does not give us much information of what actually happened for different reasons. One is that there can be many different types of violence that do not lead to someone getting killed. If that person doesn't get killed, then this violence is not counted by the government. And even if someone gets killed, you don't get to know anything about who was the perpetrator, who was probably, probably the victim, and most importantly, you, you, don't get to know, you don't get to know the tactics that were used. It's not the same thing shooting a, someone with a 22 caliber gun, handgun, than using assault weapons or grenade launchers, or maybe even worse. Just like you can chop that person down, hang it from, from a bridge, or expose a mutilated body in the middle of the square. So those very important things in terms of tactical adaptation, the ways violence is being mutating and, and developing have a lot to do with the escalation of violence uh, and the brutality around it that is not captured just with uh, measures of homicides. So these body counts are very limited instruments to see what is going on in terms of the escalation of violence in Mexico. So instead of taking a, a body count approach, I use an event data approach. An event is a little bit more complex. It has more rich information. And basically, an event is defined by having three elements. You need someone doing something to someone else. That's the perpetrator of the action, the action being conducted, and the target of it. To get all this uh, information, I gathered uh, information from, uh, oh, there's a typo there. Well, uh, 105 information sources, including paralysis from the Army, Navy, police, the general attorney at the federal level, also state-level uh, general uh, attorneys, and also 11 newspapers and 58 new local newspapers. All these from uh, January 1st, 2000 to December 31st, 2010. So this is a lot of information. Most of this was uh, 
basically um, harvested from the internet. Some of these came like especially in, in the early years from a, a hard copy document from the government that I had to use a optical character recognition to put into a electronic format and then uh, analyze it with the software that I developed with a friend. So the software that we developed, it's called Eventus ID, and it's basically uh, the first software that reads, uh, tries to identify events from text in Spanish. Uh, there are like some previous efforts to code this uh, in English, but English is a lot more uh, structured and easy to, to manage language. Uh, Spanish is just a mess, especially like when you have to uh, deal with media, like all these reports are like so complex and, and so convoluted, it's very hard to analyze just with a, a, a English a prefer, a prepared a software. So we developed this software that basically takes all that information from all those different sources, puts them in the, into the software, which is a textual annotation a, a protocol, to identify these three elements that I mentioned before. So you have the source, someone doing something to someone else. And that's how you can read, for example, the police arrested a drug smuggler. So the software takes uh, some dictionaries of actors, in this case the police, and then takes that textual information and puts it into a numeric format. And you can extract all the different elements of, of, uh, of a newspaper report um, and put it into a database format that then you can analyze in, in, in statistical, uh, uh, with the statistical software. So one of the differences of what I do uh, with respect uh, to my colleague here is that uh, News reports are, are, are longer. Definitely they have a lot more information. For example, consider just an event and there was a, there was a shootout among criminal organizations. Then the, the army arrived. There was a chase where the, the army was just like trying to get those uh, criminals. Then they had another confrontation. Someone got killed among the um, um, soldiers. There were like three uh, different um, uh, drug dealers killed. They, they arrested the rest of them, seizured all the guns, the weapons, and the vehicles. So you have like many different elements. Violence is very dynamic, it's very complex. It has many different dimensions. And the way that the software tries to approach this is by breaking all the, those pieces of information and trying to extract all that data. So all this came down in a very large database of uh, almost 10 million observations, comprising different information on who did what to whom, when and where. So that was actions from the state against criminal organizations, criminal organizations fighting the state, and also violence among criminal groups. All these for all municipalities from 10 years. And this is kind of the information that, that you get. In terms of disentangling the dynamics of violence in Mexico, we can see different trends. One is down here with a, with a blue um, uh, line, is increasing events of violent enforcement from uh, the Mexican security apparatus against criminal organizations. These are events where security forces killed or wounded a presumed member of a criminal group. So we see an increasing trend, but low. Then the green line is violence perpetrated by criminal groups against government officials. But the most important escalation of violence is definitely violence among criminal groups. So an important way of trying to understand the different dynamics of violence is to breaking down this very big bulk of homicides and trying to see what is going on in terms of who is doing what to whom. Uh, well, this is just like the national monthly data, but everything behind this is daily data at municipal level. So it's a very fine-grained data. But the government is not shooting uh, criminals. They're arresting them, which is uh, this blue line in the middle. The most important activity is drug seizure. And it's like very disruptive in terms of, of the, the business of criminal organizations in Mexico. 
but also uh, seizures of, of assets, which are vehicles or houses, security houses and mansions and all that, and also seizures of guns. So we see that um, there are like many other different policies that the government is using, not just firepower, but also arresting and seizing uh, and confiscation of, of, of goods and weapons. Um, okay, this is the way violence spreads among criminal organizations over time and over space. You're gonna see some spots and eventually the entire map gets crowded and, and, and there's more intensif intensification of violence, especially after 2006, 2007. So that's kind of, of analysis you can start doing with this uh, data, a very fine-grained disaggregated data. One of the other things that you can do is try to map, try to track uh, where all, all these uh, criminal organizations located. So this is a trend of uh, the number of municipalities with a uh, presence of some criminal groups. The blue line is the main largest uh, uh, DTOs are uh, drug trafficking organizations. Uh, and the red line is the mine organization. So we see a very large spike of, of expansion uh, of large groups that eventually uh, curved down in 2009, but at the same time that was paralleled by the spike or the increase uh, of territorial expansion of, of smaller criminal organizations. So we can break this uh, territorial expansion into um, different actors and actually see that in general, many criminal organizations are expanding their territories. Uh, with the exception of, of Juarez uh, cartel over there that has diminished a little bit, most of them are increasing their territories. Especially the red line over there are Losetas, which are like kind of a new uh, military organization, not that much focused on, on drug trafficking, but actually on the selective use of violence. So they're using their violent uh, expertise to control many other different sectors, not only drug trafficking, but uh, human trafficking, prostitution, like any other illicit uh, uh, economic markets. And uh, this is actually how you get to see the expansion of CEDAS. CEDAS were operating in secret in, uh, between uh, 89 and 2003 when their leader got arrested, Osiel Cárdenas, and then they just emerged in 2003. And after that, Osiel Cárdenas was extradited in 2007 to the U.S., and that's when the CEDAS definitely broke up with their uh, previous organization. There you go, that's expansion of Los CEDAS in 2007, and they just expanded all over the territory and controlling different parts of the, of the country. So with this disaggregated data, you can uh, analyze many different trends, but it's not only about describing the trends and the tendencies, but most importantly, analyzing what is going on, what is the main factors driving all this violence. So we take a look at the usual suspects. The way to read this graph, which is kind of odd now, is uh, there should be some bars uh, around the, uh, the black line. So there's not that much effect of poverty, population, rifles produced in the US, unemployment is almost not there, corruption I don't find any effect, the price of cocaine in the US or the expansion of local drug markets do not seem to be factors affecting the escalation of violence. Maybe are not the usual suspects, but strategic territories, areas where we find some production of drugs, areas located or municipalities located along the Gulf, the North border or the Pacific, those on the shore are more likely to receive shipments from uh, drug shipment from abroad and North uh, municipalities are more likely to be strategic for uh, entry points into the US. So there's like, yes. Uh, so there's something going on in terms of the territories. These cartels are fighting to control strategic territories. 
but we don't have that much leverage. What I find in my research is that uh, actually state action has a disruptive effect among criminal organizations that by weakening, uh, weakening one criminal group, that generates an opportunity for a challenger to invade, wipe them out, and control their territory. That's why uh, specific territories are, or the, the location of some territories are uh, strategic. But the most important thing to explain the escalation and diffusion of violence is actually law enforcement by the state, because it has a disruptive effect. And we see that uh, throughout different measures of, viol of, of law enforcement. This is the effect of violent law enforcement. This is the effect of arrests. This is the effect of uh, seizures of assets, houses and, and, and vehicles, boats, planes, all those things. Uh, the most important effect is seizure of drugs, because that really hurts, uh, hits uh, their, their source of income. And we see a similar effect on seizure of weapons. So if we try to get a broader perspective in terms of what is going on in terms of drug violence, we can see that there are like some structural strategic territories that play a role in explaining violence, but most of the violence can be explained by uh, the, the, the different dynamics between what the state is doing to criminal cartels and how that is creating violence among criminal groups. So uh, just to conclude, uh, in order to understand the beast, uh, in order to control the beast, we have to understand it. And a good way to start analyzing it is to get fine-grained data. Most of this information and big data is out there. We just have to find the right tools and technology to harvest all that information and make a good uh, use for it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Javier. It's important to note that uh, with the new president, Enrique Peña Nieto, he was inaugurated in December. Uh, the tone of the war on drugs has changed. At least the, the, the Mexican government is not in playing the same aggressive tone towards uh, law enforcement and the, against the cartels. But the reality hasn't changed much. I mean, just in, in the last first two months, in the first two months of the year, uh, 2,000 people have been killed in drug-related episodes of violence. So things are pretty much the same, despite you don't, you don't hear it in the news anymore. At least it hasn't, it hasn't been a big news recently. We're, we have a couple of questions on, on Twitter that I would like to, to go before going with the mic. Uh, and maybe you just pick which one you want to answer. Uh, one of them has to do with the, what effect will incremental US drug legalization in states such as Colorado, Washington State, uh, could have on Mexican violence. And uh, another question is, what effect with the U.S. Navy discontinuing the Caribbean interdiction efforts due to sequestration could have on Mexican violence? So I don't know if any of you would like to jump on that. Yeah. I, I can do it. Okay. Well, for the first one, I think the uh, policy experiments at Colorado and, and Washington um, might not have much a good or significant event in terms of what is going on in terms of violence in Mexico. Why? Because uh, the first reason is that the, uh, the marijuana market is not the main source of income of criminal organizations. Uh, one of the best estimates that we have around is one uh, paper produced by the Rand Corporation, and they say, like, well, maybe about just 25% of their income comes from, from marijuana all over. And from that, we don't know about the specific share of the market from Colorado or Washington, but that is just like tackling a very minor part of, of their business. Going large against criminal organizations will have to do with dealing uh, with cocaine markets and meth. 
so by just legalizing marijuana might not have a really big impact on, on diminishing the income of criminal organizations. So I think uh, that should be something that uh, we have to keep an eye on and not to put that many hopes on. I also saw on a statistic, I don't know if, uh, where, but that 90% of the marijuana consuming in the United States comes from the United States and Canada. Not, so a fraction only comes from Mexico. Yeah, well, that's right, too. I mean, in terms of market, uh, apparently the marijuana uh, from Mexico is not that good. I mean, it has seeds, uh, branches, uh, the THC is lower. I, 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 no, these are like actually chemical measures, right? And the, the, the marijuana in the U.S. is cleaner and more powerful. So in terms of market competition, it's a, a much better than marijuana here. You want to? I mean, I will echo the same idea, just that marijuana seems to be just a fraction of their business. So yeah, yeah it wouldn't affect that much. Carla, what about the, the, if sequestration actually hinders interdiction efforts in the Caribbean, should we expect then the cartels to start using even more the Mexican road into the United States? Or just the opposite, since patrolling in the Caribbean isn't, isn't enforced anymore, then we can start seeing a decrease in violence in Mexico. Mm, I think as long as there is demand, I mean, you're, you're still going to see drugs transported through Mexico. I don't think that's going to diminish if, you know, if the Caribbean is taken off as a route. And I, I, I don't think it will have much of an effect. Well, we'll take some questions from the audience. Uh, please wait for the mic. For the mic. Uh, identify yourself and your affiliation. And please give a, a short uh, question and not a, a speech. So we're going to start here. Hi, my name is Josh Keating with Foreign Policy Magazine. Uh, my question's for Mr. Osorio. Uh, given the sort of trends that some of the other speakers were talking about with a decreased amount of media coverage of drug attacks and also less quality information coming from the Mexican government, won't that necessarily degrade the quality of data that's going into your measurements? If these incidents aren't being reported, won't it become more difficult for you to sort of track these trends over time? Thanks. Do you want me to respond that directly, or we have, okay. Yeah, uh, no, that, that's definitely a concern. Uh, I try to minimize that problem by gathering like as many sources as possible. Uh, one of the things that I have been managed to identify with the information that I have is that when the, the location hits up, when there's violence towards those uh, journalists in that specific uh, uh, location, what they do, I mean, sometimes they still report, but they send the news to the national level newspaper and they report it as staff. So the individual journalists behind uh, 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 the computer writing th those notes do not get targeted. So in that case, I'm not that worried. And, and, and some of the other parts of the information that I use uh, is like trying to cross-check among different sources. So since I have like so many sources, I can cross-validate, which are repeated several times. I delete uh, duplicates, but I will always try to get the most information out of, out of what I have. Of course, that might be a concern, uh, of bias, but uh, please, if anyone can improve it, help me out. Can I add something to it? Uh, so I think one of the fascinating things that I've seen in the media uh, that they're they doing in some of the cities where they're afraid is that they're quoting directly from social media without the name of the journalists involved. So you see this article in a local newspaper that says, last night on Twitter, people were reporting X, Y, and Z happening. Uh, so they kind of defer the responsibility to the crowd in some ways uh, without having to put their name there. So, you know, this will give, if, uh, uh, 
they're, they're collecting this kind of data, you know, you, you will imagine that, that that will come in there. But I will also say that there's a lot of information that shows up on blogs and, and social media that you never see showing up on, on traditional media, and it will be really interesting to augment some of the data with, with data from blogs. So like there is this blog called Blog del Narco and another one called Mundo Narco, where you see that not only the blog posts themselves, but also the comments on the blog uh, bring a lot of really, really kind of insightful information about what's happening. Uh, a lot. Yeah, something. Sure. I, I think journalists um, across the country, it's definitely the case with the idea of Juarez, they're being asked to compile their own information and perhaps they don't publish it, but they're, they're still sort of having their own, building their own databases. So you could also reach out directly to them and I think that would be one of the solutions. We have another question over there, the gent, and then we have plenty of time, so... Uh, hello, my name is Jose Pulido. I'm with Mitsui USA, and uh, I'm really interested in the quality, uh, sort of like measuring the quality of the tweets. Um, would you ever recommend using tweet data to measure a country's level of risk uh, for business? Thank you very much. The quality, what do you mean by the quality of the tweets? Is the mic on? Um, Quality, uh, as in reliability, like I see. it's just a citizen right. um, seeing mm -hmm. an event may, may not get all the information properly, right. so there may be misinformation being circulated. Right. Someone just retweets it. Right. Yeah, I think there's like a couple of different ways in which you can try to get at this. Obviously, it's not perfect, but one of them is uh, just volume. So if multiple people are reporting the same thing using different words or like not retweeting each other, that's one. The other one is through the network itself. So like the graph of people on Twitter say that I tweet something and somebody else who I don't follow and that person doesn't follow me also tweets the same thing that gives more validity than something that me and my friends are tweeting. So obviously there is a lot less credibility to that one. So I think you could use the graph and the volume data to, to kind of augment the, the kind of ability to check this information. Yeah. Jan, over here. Yeah, uh, John Mueller from Cato and from Ohio State. Uh, could you give me some idea of how many people are, of the 50,000, how many would be considered, quote, innocent, not quote? In other words, if one stays completely out of the drug trade, is one's chance in Mexico being killed uh, in a homicide any higher than it was before this took place? Uh, it, it, most of the description seems to say is very focused, even on journalists in some respects, because that screws up the, the war. Uh, but the vast majority seems to be drug guys killing other drug guys and some degree uh, government officials. So I'd like to get sort of proportions of that. How many people are actually killed in, say, the crossfire, that kind of thing, et cetera, or are purposely or mistakenly killed? Can I take that? Sure. Yeah, actually, we don't know. We wish we know. I mean, this is one of the weaknesses of the state that doesn't know who's getting killed or why, or for what reason. Uh, to get to know that, you will have to have an investigation, and that takes an entire state apparatus be working behind every specific case. Of course, in this situation, in this scenario, the government is completely overwhelmed, saturated, uh, and about 80%, 98% uh, of all these homicides are not even investigated. So we don't know how many of those people being killed are actually uh, innocent, or if they actually had some involvement in terms of, of these different uh, dimensions of, of violence. What we see, though, is a, a different 
trend in the way violence is being conducted. Uh, now, and like in more recent times, there's not that much confrontations among criminal organizations, but now that the state is breaking them down and breaking their uh, logistics organization, uh, capability, now they're preying on society. So there's a, lot, a lot, lot, lot more of kidnappings and extortion, and some of those threats actually get exercised and people are getting killed. Yeah, that's one of the narratives of the Mexican government claiming that, oh, oh, if they got killed, it's because they were probably in the drug business. But if 98% of the murders are never investigated, there's no way to find out. Uh, Jason, over there. Jason Kuznicki, Cato Institute. I'm hearing from all of you that the uh, problems here are, are very real and will not go away short of a full legalization. Is there anyone on the panel who would like to stand up and defend a full legalization of drugs? This is the Cato Institute. You must have expected this question was coming. <laughs> Thank you, Jason. You will get a lunch after this. <laughs> yeah. You guys, what, what's your opinion on legalization? No, definitely. Uh, but I think it has to be very careful uh, crafted. It has to be a very careful crafted uh, uh, policy. And it has to do uh, not only with legalization, but trying to not just focus on the punitive approach of uh, fighting drugs in drug producing countries, but also to approach the more uh, encompassive uh, uh, perspective of human development in uh, drug consumer countries. And that has to cover not only uh, marijuana, which is like the soft drug, but go for many different uh, other uh, more aggressive drugs. And we have seen some, some uh, interesting uh, experiments, for example, uh, in Portugal. I mean, they just opened the entire uh, drug market and we don't see a spike of violence there. So we should keep uh, our eyes on other experiments that are going on somewhere. And that might have a, an effect of just breaking the, the, the huge amount uh, of money that is going on behind illicit markets. And nowadays, like, no one is willing to kill or die for a, a bottle of alcohol that you can buy at any convenience store. So if you break that market, all the incentives just go away for conducting violence in terms to control those markets. Yes. Definitely. I mean, I, a few years ago, I was in a room with uh, Noam Chomsky, who basically also argued for the same thing. So I would say, if, if the Cato Institute and Chomsky are, uh, agree on this, it must be something <laughs> true about this. Carla? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm going to plead the fifth on, on an opinion, but I, I do think that before talking about legalization, there, there's a problem of public policy in, in terms of health in Mexico, and there is none. So maybe before talking about that, I think rehabilitation should also be um, on the agenda. There, there's almost none. There is a question here from the gentleman. Who else is in line? Just to see hands. Okay, just to you know. All right, we have... Thank you, Eric Sterling from the Criminal Justice Policy Foundation. We're three and a half months into the Peña Nieto presidency. Uh, is there anything that you can tell us that, from your research about how violence is proceeding? Maybe that's for you, Carla. It seems like violence, if it hasn't spiked, it's, it's certainly remained as uh, intense as before. I, I mean, somebody mentioned the number in the first two months, there were about 2,000 murders, uh, homicides. So I think that Peña Nieto is trying to change the dialogue and make it more about a flourishing economy. And obviously, there was the takedown of the um, education union leader. So the, there, there's a shift in the dialogue. But the violence um, is, is definitely, I mean, I, I think that when he took 
control of uh, the government, he, the violence was already sort of on, on a slight decline and he may be riding that wave, but 2,000 homicides in the first two months, it's concerning. Yeah, the problem is that we don't know how many people are getting killed right now. The government stopped publishing figures in, in 2011. Uh, right now, the figure for 2012 is supposedly to be around 12,000 to 15,000. The government claims a victory because it dropped from 16,000 in 2011, but I mean, 12,000 people killed. Uh, the lady over there in the back. Good afternoon. My name is Patricia. I come, uh, I come from Mexico City. Uh, I am a student. My postgrad, my master about uh, cooperation, uh, cooperation between Mexico and the United States uh, about security. Uh, I congratulate, congratulate you for your. Um, your ideas, but I have uh, I have a lot of questions. But just one. <laughs> the main, yeah, it's about uh, who whoever wants to ask uh, answer me. It's about um, do you think that it's time to change drug strategy? Uh, well, after 100 years with uh, without successful results. All right. Do we have to change the strategy? Is it working? Obviously not, to, according to some of us, but. <laughs> yeah, no, think? well, if Patricia, you allow me to, to respond that. It, what I show in my research is like having a, a proactive, a punitive strategy to fight crime or drugs actually generates all this violence. So it's not actually declining the price, it's not declining the production or supply of drugs, but it's just creating these massive waves, uh, waves of violence. So we really have to rethink punitive strategies that are being so harmful and damaging. Yeah, just one, one thought on this. I just remember from my, from my time in government how, how deeply siloed uh, we are in responding to this challenge. And if we look at uh, where a lot of the money is coming from, yes, drugs is one piece of it, but so is kidnapping, so is extortion, so is uh, money laundering, so is human trafficking, so is you know illicit arm. I mean, there, there's sort of multiple revenue sources for uh, these organizations, and yet uh, different parts of the government fight different pieces of it, oftentimes not uh, coordinating with each other. So you know, it's sort of the classic challenge of how do you silo bust your way through a challenge that you only uh, uh, hurt yourself with uh, when you actually sort of function in, in, in this very siloed way. So I think uh, we have to find a way to do that. Question over here, then. <clears throat> Thank you, uh, Pat Spann, just uh, represent myself. Um, given um, the current level of instability and violence down in Mexico, I wonder if you could, uh, each of you could comment on um, you know, what do you see as the possible end game and, and possible timeline? I know earlier you mentioned something about vigilantism. I see that's in, uh, occurring in the uh, papers uh, last couple of weeks. And um, I assume it can't, you know, the, the level of instability in the nation of Mexico cannot, you know, cannot survive indefinitely given that level of instability. And I wonder if each of you could take a shot at what do you see the end game and timeline? Is there an end game? Well, I think that's a million dollar question. 
Um, I can see two different ways this could evolve. I don't know if that's actually going to end violence and if that's going to end soon. But I can see two different waves, uh, two different paths. One is the breakdown of large organizations into smaller cells that break their capability to conduct uh, uh, international drug trafficking. That might increase violence in, in the short term. Uh, the other way it might go is that to see the evolution of two big cartels, one the Ceras uh, along the uh, Gulf and the Sinaloa cartel uh, along the Pacific. Those might become like big uh, monopolies of violence. In that case, you might reach kind of a stable equilibrium and violence might go down. But I don't know, we don't know for sure. Yeah, obviously yeah, we don't know, but I think, you know, I'm kind of hopeful based on what I see happening on the streets in terms of uh, self-organizing behavior coming from citizens. So, and you also see it in some small communities where some people are organizing themselves into kind of taking the role of what the state will typically do. So I think if you see the, the change in policies at the you know, state level in the U.S. Towards, more legal, towards legalization of some drugs, and you see these kind of increased uh, you know, self-organizations from citizens, and also the, you know, how the economy in Mexico is doing uh, somewhat better than in the past, I think the intersection of those different factors might actually help in reduce the violence in the future. But obviously, it's going to take a long time unless the government takes a change in policy. So I say, unless the policy changes, uh, I think you, these changes might happen very, very slowly. Uh, if at all. You mentioned, uh, yeah, Carla. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't know what the end game or the timeline is, but I think that a good starting point would be, an, uh, you know, starting with, with the judiciary. And I think uh, fair hourly wages for police is a good way to start. And I think an overhaul of the justice system as well is important. Um, you know, more emphasis on violence, on, on evidence, and less on confessions taken under duress. I think that's. Um, a starting point, but I don't know what the end point is. I'd have a lot more money if I knew. It's interesting because many people talk about the capture of El Chapo as one of the will be major accomplishes, accomplishments of the Mexican government, but ironically, if the Chapo gets cap captured, uh, that could actually make things worse, right? Because that will make the breakup of the Sinaloa cartel into smaller organizations, and that could lead to enormously more crime, right? Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, that's exactly what happened with uh, Ociel. Uh, who was the leader of uh, El Golfo cartel. Uh, they arrested him. Uh, then there was a split between El Golfo and Los Zetas, and now you see like all the activities of, of Los Zetas. Something similar happened with the Sinaloa cartel, where uh, uh, the Beltran Leyva cartel just uh, split from them, and they aligned with the Zetas to fight their previous allies. So break it, like these kinch, uh, uh, killing uh, drug lords actually breaks cartels and creates a lot more violence. So if you read that the chapel was captured, don't pop up the champagne yet. No, we have time for two more questions here. Thank you. I'm Marisa Maldonado. I'm also from Mexico City. I'm a student here in Washington. I want to ask you about traditional media. What do you think will happen to these newspapers and radio stations who are actually stopping to cover the, the violence issue? Will they lose credibility? Will they go out of business? Or do you think that, that eventually they will start covering these issues again? Um, I'll, I'll say two things about this. Uh, it's an excellent question. I mean, the first is I think there's a, a symbiotic relationship that exists between traditional media and, and social media in the sense that uh, most of the content is going to increasingly, uh, or the real-time content is going to increasingly come from uh, the citizenry who are just 
you know, they're, they're physically there. And Carla's first one to say, Mexico City Bureau of New York Times has, what, four people? Um, so you're just outmatched in terms of numbers, but I think that's okay because ultimately uh, the mainstream media is still going to play an enormously valuable role in the uh, in the analysis and in the validation. You heard Carla mention that you know she's not going to post something unless she can verify it or it's verifiable, um, and that's an important sort of standard uh, for the mainstream media to, to have. If they begin compromising that, uh, then you have a different problem. And the other thing that I think is starting to happen, in particular, obviously in Mexico, where some mainstream reporters are afraid to actually report with as much candor as they might like. What social media is doing as the number of people online is increasing is it's generating a demand uh, that's essentially leaving the mainstream media with no choice but to actually report on this or risk being irrelevant. When you have millions of citizens reporting on something that's happening on the street and mainstream media is reporting on something that's happening somewhere else in the world instead, um, it doesn't quite work. And so I actually think there's a, something to be said about safety and numbers. I think social media will help the mainstream media with that. Carla, you want to say it's, it's definitely an alarming trend, but I think it it can also be viewed as a challenge and some newspapers have already you know stepped up to that uh, you know they they simply find ways to report and write and present information more creatively they do it you know obviously sometimes they sign a staff as as protection but they get creative you know they they use graphs or they sometimes they send their information to national papers because it's safer but i don't think that you know papers newspapers in mexico will become obsolete they're just going to find ways around this problem Time for one last question over here. Thank you all. Um, Julia Rashadi with Roll Call. My question is for Mr. Monroy. Um, I'm curious, you said that um, hashtags kind of organically take hold for people to talk about what's going on in certain cities. Um, I, I wonder how you decided, though, which ones are um, or if you have any sense of, of how certain ones become like the most prevalent, because you said that there are multiple ones that could point to the same thing. If you could mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that is an emergent kind of behavior where uh, I think if some of the kind of more visible people start using the hashtag, one particular hashtag, that one becomes more popular. Also, it's a matter of volume. So one of the things that I saw, and it was really interesting, is that some of the curators we're tweeting a lot, I mean, as you can see, with one particular hashtag. So just in terms of volume, if you are searching on Twitter for you know, what's happening in Monterey and you see the majority of tweets come with one hashtag and from one or two people, that obviously helps you know, push that uh, to a higher number. The other thing is algorithms of, of Twitter itself uh, that pick trending topics in the cities. Uh, sometimes those hashtags trend in those cities, uh, so that helps them uh, also gain visibility. So I say, I think it comes from multiple sources. One is visibility of the individuals, uh, volume, and also the media itself sometimes does, as I show in CNN and others, sometimes they do use some of the hashtags, so that just brings a lot of attention, and, and I think it creates like a snowball effect. Well, thank you very much. It was a wonderful panel. Please let me give them a round of applause.